You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Columbia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia. 2,600 meters closer to the stars, and this is episode 428 of the Columbia Calling podcast. We've got Dr. Richard Stoller from all the way from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where he teaches at Penn State University on the line. He's a Colombianist, Latin Americanist, and basically, I mean, he's just a wealth of knowledge about all things Colombia. He's written theses on it and so on. And what I like most is he's quite tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic, or acid on the Columbia Calling Facebook page when there are, um, well, I don't know, questionable articles published about Columbia and, of course, questionable comments by some of the followers of the podcast there. So uh, this is a fun episode coming your way with uh, Dr. Richard Stoller. I enjoy it immensely, and I know you will too. And just a couple of messages from our sponsors this week. This episode is brought to you by BNB Columbia Tours, experts in custom-made travel throughout Colombia. The team at BNB Columbia Tours can provide you with fantastic private experiences, creating wonderful memories of Colombia for a lifetime. Check out the website at bnbcolombia.com. Complete the free itinerary form and tell them that Columbia Calling sent you to receive a further 5% off their already great prices. Pretty incredible. And also, the Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. So that's our two sponsors for this episode. Again, thank you for everyone uh, for supporting us on Patreon. Yes, of course, Patreon fluctuates. Sometimes there are people who sponsor, sometimes there are those who withdraw, but we've hit a happy medium. But however, if you care, to support us, do check out patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. And there are sponsorship deals around $5 and upwards and all sorts of goodies you can get, uh, depending on the commitment. So thank you. And we'll be over to Emily Hart right now with the news and on to Dr. Richard Stoller in segment three. Don't go away. I'm Emily Hart and these are your top stories from Columbia for the week of June 13th, 2022. The second round of the presidential election is this Sunday, and there is still no clear front-runner. Gustavo Petro and Rodolfo Hernández are in a tie, with less than 1% between them, according to the latest round of polls of voting intentions. The election is therefore in the hands of the undecided. Around 7% of Colombians, hundreds of thousands of likely voters, remain undecided, or say they will vote blank. As was the case in the first round, the last week will be crucial. While disinformation, edited photos and putative death threats ramp up towards Sunday, Rodolfo has announced that he will not debate with Petro face-to-face. However, one thing is certain. Colombia will have, for the first time, an Afro-Colombian and female vice president. Academic Maralene Castillo and activist Francia Marquez are the price presidential candidates who accompany the two men in the race though the two have very different political perspectives on race, gender, and the country's priorities. Meanwhile, current president Ivan Duque has been at the Summit of the Americas in the USA, at which a new document called the Los Angeles Declaration on Migration and Protection created a regional migration system. However, the summit was a controversial one. After the exclusion of Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela led to the boycott by Mexico's president, and the non-attendance of Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, all countries key in migration across the region. 
and information continues to surface about the murder of Marcelo Pecci, the Paraguayan prosecutor killed in Colombia last month. The murder was supposedly coordinated by Brazilian gang First Capital Command, who paid half a million dollars to the assassin. Pecci, a specialized prosecutor against organized crime in Paraguay, was in charge of several of the most important drug trafficking and money laundering cases in the country, including against the First Capital Command, which is one of the most powerful mafia groups in the region. Pecci had also investigated a Hezbollah element in Latin America. Colombia will have the highest economic growth in the region in 2022, according to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, driven by private consumption and a gradual rebound in employment. However, the OECD voiced concerns about inflation, which has reached 9.2% and is affecting consumer spending, especially by low-income households. Food prices in Colombia have risen 26% year-on-year, while the minimum wage increased only by 10%. Colombian naval officials conducting underwater monitoring of the sunken San Jose Galleon have discovered two other historical shipwrecks nearby, from around the same period as Colombia's war for independence from Spain, two centuries ago. The San Jose itself sank in 1708 near Cartagena and is thought to be carrying treasure that would be worth billions of dollars. And in even older news, paleontologists have discovered a new species of shark which went extinct millions of years ago in Colombia. The shark, whose fossils were found in Santander, measured between 4 and 5 metres and had teeth in the shape of dominoes used to crush its food. It lived 135 million years ago and is the first of its kind, known as strophagus, ever found in the southern hemisphere. Those were your top stories for this week. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next Monday. And we're back. This is episode 428 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. And it's a first-time visitor to the podcast, first-time guest, Dr. Richard Stoller from Penn State University. He's the Assistant Dean for Academic Affairs at the Friar Honors College. His All of his studies, his graduate studies, are in modern Latin American history. He's you know, in charge of Latin American studies. And, of course, he's got a great fondness for Colombia. He was just down here for the first round of the elections with some students from up there. But uh, let's take this moment to say welcome on the Columbia Calling Podcast, Richard. Well, thank you, Richard. I'm very glad to be here. <laughs> that's right. Tocayos, that's right. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it's it's only in the last year that I found what I found out what Tokayo meant. I thought it just generically meant friends of any sort. I did not realize it meant that you shared a first name. There you go, Tokayo. I love that word. It's because I learned it from my father-in-law, and we were up at the beach somewhere up in La Guajira, and uh, the guy who was sort of tending, you know, looking after the houses or one of the houses that we rented was called Walberto. Um, <laughs> Walberto. And so my, my father was like, oye, y Walberto, tienes tocayo? <laughs> like this. And I well, just thought it was funny, great. The yeah. only Walberto I know, thanks to my degree in modern Latin American history, was uh, the Bolivian uh, Gualberto Villarroel, most, most famous for being strung up, from, being driven from power and strung up from a lamppost in La Paz in 1946. So that was a a bad way to end, even by Bolivian president standards. Yes, right. That's the one and only Gualberto I have heard of. And was he a, was he a dictator back then? And, and no, he was. Um, it was a a strange thing. He was the you know the 1952 Bolivian revolution, the MNR, the nationalist thing. He was kind of a proto version of that. But I think he had like weird Nazi connections because Bolivian politics was kind of messed up. If you've ever read James <laughs> about that period. And um, anyway, obviously, some people really, really didn't like him. And uh, that's how he ended. So uh, good, good luck to the other Walberto. Walberto. Well, I think he's fine up there near to Palomino. Well, actually, if you're talking about Bolivia, I, a few episodes ago, I had uh, Chef Shafiq Meji on. And that's his book, Crossed Off the Map, Travels in Bolivia. But it's far more. Uh, it was uh, like, Queen, Queen Victoria who crossed it off the map, right? I believe that. <laughs> Is that right? I, I didn't know. <laughs> because the um, uh, British uh, minister in Bolivia, I think in the 1870s was, uh, or 70s, or yeah, must have been the 70s, was uh mistreated uh was was sent packing out of the the uh country and uh when Qu queen victoria heard that uh, she ordered it crossed off the map uh, i think that's at least the the apocryphal story 
but it must be referred to. You see the kind of fascinating stuff I learned during my several years of graduate studies in Latin American history. But I love it. I mean, that sort of anecdotal stuff I love. And it must be referred to in this book, but I have not read it yet. (laughs) It's there on my desk, on my list of things. But let's get on. I mean, awesome. Let's pick your brains then about Colombia. You must have all sorts of anecdotes. Well, when when did you first get down here? Then let's let's talk about that. I mean, what what was the year that you were down here doing? Yeah, your it was uh, August of nineteen eighty three. So I was an undergraduate student at a small liberal arts college in Connecticut, named Wesleyan University, and um, I wanted to do study abroad that would engage my my Spanish studies, my abilities, which I thought were good at the time, but in retrospect proved to be terrible. (laughs) Uh, Much like five years from now, people will tell me that my Spanish abilities now were pretty terrible. um, My options uh, at uh, Wesleyan were Spain, Mexico, and Colombia. Spain, frankly, never really interested me. Uh, Later on, it proved to be a lovely place to go on honeymoon, but I never had the interest to, to go check it out. Uh, Mexico didn't really move me because I thought I could get in the car and drive to Mexico, Uh, whereas Colombia had the attraction of distance and really knowing nothing about it. Mm. And uh, so I said, Colombia, it is. And that was a consortium program of several small liberal arts colleges, most of which were from the Midwest and were very rural and um, were much smaller, about one third the size of my uh, institution. And that was relevant because when I was on this program in the the fall semester of 1983, so second half of that year. My fellow students uh, were freaked out, not so much because it was a new country, but they had never lived in a city before. They had never Uh, taken a bus. All all of these, you know, these, I mean, these were people who were from very small towns for the most part and went to uh, uh, colleges um, of 800 1,200 people, and they were suddenly thrust into this mega city. I at least had some familiarity with New York, so my comfort level was a little higher. But um, I do remember hating the city. And if you've ever seen, you know, that Brad Pitt narrated documentary from about Transmilenio and about Peñalosa, it's from the early 2010s. You can see it on YouTube. The the YouTube version has Danish subtitles, which is a a hoot. But anyway... Um, in in that documentary, which is back from you know oh the the good days of Transmilenio and Peñalosa yeah. redoing the city and everything, um, he, they interview him and he says you have to know what the city was like in the 80s and 90s. People hated their city, and I'm always here to say it is true. People hated the city. So I mean, what was what was it like for you know? I'm picturing your your colleagues or your companions coming out from like Muskingum College in in Ohio or something. 800 people less. Yeah, I remember but like Olivet and places like that. Very small. Yeah. But so I mean, what was the city like? What was Bogota like in 1983? Well, one thing to remember: this was the tail end of the thing that Bogota was known for in the world uh, in the 70s, which was Gamines. I mean you know, the idea of street children and say what you want about the successes or failures of Bogota and other levels of government over the last um, few years. We don't have street children in Bogota, right? We don't like have feral, you know, 12 year olds uh, sniffing glue or typewriter, you know, whatever that fluid is. I I guess that product doesn't exist anymore, right? Because typewriters don't exist. But, um, you know, gamines were real, right? I mean, they're this was a place, uh, and also, you know, we say, oh, the police don't do anything, the police are corrupt, and so forth. Uh, again, no comparison. Back then, uh, it was said that if you were in a traffic accident, get out before the police got there, because they would, like, you know, steal your wallet off of your, you know, still warm body, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, there's, there are all kinds of ways in which the city was a much more kind of... Uh, brutal place. Another thing you can watch on YouTube for those people who say Transmillennial stinks, and I agree, Transmillennial stinks. I, I don't make plans to take it, right? I'm a, I'm a fan of the blue buses that yeah. get you from A to point B, and they're always empty because nobody knows how they work, right? <laughs> but um, the the bus system was was entirely chaotic. If you can see, again, thank you, YouTube, a documentary by Ciro Duran called La Guerra del Centavo from 1986. Um, That was, you know, that was my second or third visit by that point. And uh, the first 10 minutes are all you really need to look at. It's an unnarrated uh, view of Carrera Decima downtown where the Seguros Bolivar building is, like about 60. Um, I actually had an internship in that very building, so I caught the bus every day on that street. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, whatever you think of things now, 
things were worse. I know everybody says todo tiempo pasado fue mejor, but that is not the case uh, for, for, <laughs> Bogota. for Bogota. Now, the Gaminas, you see, uh, the someone I, who I distantly know set up the NGO Children Change Colombia, which was known as Niños de los Andes, having seen a BBC documentary on the Gaminas living in the tunnels uh, under Bogota oh. and sniffing and so on. I, in fact, I'm a trustee of that uh, NGO now, but... Um, it, the, the Gaminis were a serious, I mean, you know, as you're saying, feral children. And I mean, were they, were these children of, I mean, were they just abandoned children by sex workers, displaced? What, where did they come from? I really don't know. I can't say. Remember at the time I was 18 year old, I hadn't made it, you know, all I could do was observe. I didn't know anything about, you know, I'm, I'm not the uh, kind of, semi-professional student of Colombian reality that I've, I've become. But um, all I can say is they were a real uh, observable phenomena. The only time that I was ever in a, you know, you might be robbed situation was a Sunday afternoon. I always thought that Sunday afternoons downtown were a very perilous time because, you know, people do tourist things. Even back then, there was some tourism, domestic and foreign in Bogota. But after about three or four o'clock, you know, the Ciclovia would end, everybody would go home, right? And then it would be very desolate downtown. And I remember being around the Tequendama, because remember, this is the 80s. It was still the, the Centro Internacional was the center of wealth and power in, in, in Bogota, right? It was the, the north wasn't quite the thing yet, right? It was, it was already a thing, but it, uh, the, the the downtown still still had some 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 merit, right? Some prestige. And I remember being there and there was like hardly anybody was out. Um, goes without saying that there were no police. And, you know, there was this pack of uh pack of uh, kids, probably younger than me, you know, eyeing me up and I just ducked right into the building, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, waited there for like an hour until they got bored and left. Oh, good. Well, it's the only time I've ever been robbed was a Sunday evening in uh, in Bo downtown Bogota. Uh, and, and again, it was a, a kind of feral child. He was he must have been about 12. But then again, I, I said at the end of it, it was my fault. I shouldn't have been doing it. I know this. I know I shouldn't have been there. I know I shouldn't have been walking. Well, you know, this gets to one of the perverse things about Colombia, the whole culture of, you know, dar papaya, you know, the yeah. idea that, you know, it's it's the fault of the person who, you know, you shouldn't have done those things, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, what l level of societal dysfunction have we had forever in Colombia, at least urban Colombia, that, you, you know, the first instinct is to blame the victim. I mean, the person who gets robbed leaving the bank and the police the police say, oh, no, it's your fault. You should have called us to accompany you, right? Mm. As as if being accompanied by two police officers leaving the bank isn't a marker that you should be robbed as soon as the police leave you where they're leaving you. I mean, they're not going to accompany you for life, right? Yeah, I don't. But yeah, you, you've, you've internalized the whole, I shouldn't have done that thing. Yeah, right? well, definitely there's that. But also, I I will not sign, I, I sign off. If I've ever had to, I've had to sort of, instead of trying to do a transfer between banks, like David Vienda to Banco de Bogota for like, you know, hiring a boat or something for some tourists, um, I, I take it out of David Vienda and run across the street to Banco de Bogota because I prefer it. I don't want the police and I don't want the delay as well because it's like, oh yeah, we'll be here in the next two hours. Like, oh. yeah. so over, the, over the last month in Colombia, uh, I have had to pay a lot of bills. So I've gone into the bank but mm. carrying the money in the first place, right? Mm. Uh, and I'm just hoping and assuming that, uh, you know, if there's somebody in the bank who's like signaling this, right? That, that, you know, that they have somebody on the inside. I know that's a big Argentine thing that supposedly yes. bank employees are the ones that, you know, but uh, oh, they call them like ficheros or something like that. But um, ho hopefully they are recognizing that I am leaving the money in the bank and I am leaving <laughs> It's not, you know, yeah, that, that the special sort of, I mean, almost like a Masonic sort of handshake. Yeah. This guy's got money, yeah. you know. So. But it does get to an interesting point about Colombia, which is, you know, we're always told, oh, don't use ATMs on, you know, as, as foreigners, as tourists, mm -hmm. don't use ATMs on the street, don't use your cell phones on the street. And you imagine coming to a, a city, at least in the case of, of, of Bogota, where people are petrified and don't do those, they do those things all the time. Everybody mm -hmm. uses their cell phone on the street. Everybody, you use the ATM where the ATM is if you need the money at that point. You know, people don't, uh, It you know, a fear of crime kind of runs your life, but then it kind of doesn't because mm -hmm. people don't live that way well that's it i mean in 1983 of course you say a different code mm -hmm. i've seen a good photograph that's always pulled up of all the buses on the decima 
just just like it's, it, the Tetris of buses. I don't know how that even moved. And I look at it and I think, God, you know, how many times over would I get robbed trying to cross one one side to the other? Were yeah. there any other foreigners aside from you and your companions back then? Um, I couldn't really say because you know we were on a student program, mm. um, but it certainly. I think to the extent that there were, they were well north of like Calle Cien, right? So mm-hmm. not just the, the the near north, but the, the far north at that time, right? Because remember the city, the, the city didn't, wasn't built up much past about 150 something, right? Masuren, yeah. right? You know, Masuren, those yes. weird with style houses you can yes. see. <laughs> um, and at that time, uh, the bus routes that ran along the uh, Alto Pista Norte, which, you know, for your listeners, is the main road that goes into the north and then leaves town, right? Um, uh, they uh, built some bridges, really, right, late 70s, so a few years mm-hmm. before I came. And the last bridge they built was at 170th Street. And on the buses, the placards would say Tercer Puente, right? So if a bus <laughs> was Tercer Puente or Third Bridge, then it was really going to the outskirts, right? <laughs> but people tended to, uh, foreigners, as I understood it, uh, understand it, tended to live there. In fact, on my first full day, all of us, the, the students on this program, our first full day in Colombia, we were taken to the U.S. Embassy, mm-hmm. which at that time was that bunker-like building on Trece and, and 39th. It belongs to some government agency now. It's not the yes. current embassy, right? There's some building that looks like a bunker there, and mm-hmm. it, sure enough, it was the U.S. Embassy. Uh, and they gave us a security briefing and said, none of you should live south of Calle Cien. And all of us did. All of our host families were, you know, I, I lived in uh, Federman, right? which is the neighborhood on the other yeah. side from Campin, right? Yeah. So it's between Campin and Palo Sesto. Uh, and, and most of us lived in, you know, places like that, 50s, 60s, whatever, middle-class kind of host mm-hmm. families. Um, and uh, and we were like thinking, oh my gosh, should we not live here? But it was it was fine. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that back then you were not an expat in Colombia unless you had a very solid reason. Whereas now it's, you know, it, well, I think now, I guess the growth market, maybe not for Bogota, but from what I've seen online, Medellin, other places, Manizales, is retirement, right? Yeah. And the idea that you as an Anglo uh, North American would retire to Colombia would have been, would have considered, been considered very bizarre. <laughs> and, and remember, these weren't even the bad times. This was pre-drug wars, right? Yeah. I mean, this this was in the late 80s and early 90s, which was in the heart of my going to Colombia very frequently and staying for a long time to do dissertation research. There would be times on the plane from the U.S. to Colombia where I would be one of very few foreigners, and the Colombians are like, "Why are you going?" I said, "Well, I'm a Colombian historian. Where else am I going to go?" You know. Nicholas de Ferreman, it's a nice barrio. It would have been nice middle class sort of tree line. It was a very nice barrio. So if you imagine it now, it basically looked like that then, except it was all houses, right? Now it's house, house, apartment, house, house, apartment, uh, because it's it's a very well-located area. Uh, As my students can attest rather grumblingly, you can walk from there to downtown because I made them on the first, our first day in Bogota last uh, May uh, 21st, we walked from, okay, not Fairman, but Galerias, so the next neighborhood, we walked from there to downtown, uh, and uh, I think it nearly killed them, but uh, I did look at my watch, it only took about 50 minutes. It's not far. But I guess when it's your first day, it's a lot. It's a lot of emotion, a lot of things to take. Well, in. there's that. There's that, and also, frankly, uh, a lot of the intervening territory is quite ugly. Yes, this is true. And I said, that, that's that's the point to show that it's not all a showpiece city, right? Yeah, because you get to you get what what street do you take them down? Did you take them all the way down the Caracas? No, I didn't do that. <laughs> um, because actually, uh, Caracas, Caracas is really kind of, kind of a mystery. You'd think yeah. all of it would be an area of high kind of valorization and everything would be gentrified. But, you know, once you get a little past or north of the Javeriana until you get into the 60s, it's like a dead zone. And if oh, I had wow. money, I would just buy all that property. Right. Well, it, its own. I mean, it, it, there is there are things going on there, but there's also sort of like, there's that murky world, isn't there? Where the El Castillo used to be the the brothel there next to La Piscina, and El Castillo yeah, yeah, yeah. got then got taken over by uh, well, it was Extensión de you know Terminos or whatever it's called. It's now taken over by the district. It's now like an art gallery. But I was down there for for the ngo actually looking at some of the projects and it's pretty hairy down there and of course the you know just one block back from all of those uh, uh, yeah well that, that that that's farther south piscina and everything but uh, chapinero the traditional yeah. shopping neighborhood is one that is 
that was actually nicer in the 80s, right? So if you think about uh, Trece in the mm. 50s and 60s, um, now I saw it recently. I, I, I actually, when we when we had coffee, uh, what was that, a week ago, a mm. week and a half ago, I walked back to Galerias from there. There you go. Uh, and so walked through there, and I had heard things about how terrible it was. Um, it's not that bad, mm. but it was nicer 40 years ago because it was the Bogota shopping place, right? At that time, there was one shopping mall in Bogota, and it was brand new. That was Unicentro, right? <laughs> Remember, Unicentro at the time was such a big cultural thing that it's got the little foundation stone. The pre president, Turbay, opened it, right? Now, of course, and then, of course, we had 30 years that if a president inaugurated every new shopping mall, they would have time for nothing else, right? The country was awash in shopping malls, uh, in part for safety reasons, right? People like shopping indoors. But at that time, that was the beginning of the shopping mall craze. And it was, I think, very harmful to a traditional shopping neighborhood like like Shoppinero. Yeah, you know, when when you've got that, mo the sort of auto mobility, and then people just can get out of Shoppinero and drive straight up, because I don't imagine there were as many private vehicles, uh, drive up to 127th and, you know, yep. endless parking. Yeah. yeah. happened all over the world uh, at that as well. But 1983, and, so you're saying it was Turbay who was in? Well, no, it was, it was Betancourt, but uh, Unicentro was, was a year before uh, that. I think, he, right. and over, I think it's from late 81, the, the, the yeah. Unicentro. I don't but, know. I, but no, I, I was there when uh, Betancourt was president. So it's like everybody's visit, everybody's first visit to Colombia coincides with like a peace process. That was my first yeah. peace process, right? Yeah. How many have we been through since then? Oh, yeah. And, and of course, then Betancourt was president during the Toma del Palacio as well. Well, the Armero and that, yeah. right? Which took place within just a month, month and a half of, of, of uh, each other. But they weren't, I mean, you you didn't coincide, or did you coincide? I don't no, know. I was. that was actually between visits for me. So basically, I was there from August to December of 83, and then I was there for a couple of months. I got a small grant uh, to do an undergraduate thesis, and so I was there in mid-1984. Um, and then I uh, wasn't there in 1985. Turned out to be a really good year not to be there, at least <laughs> yeah, the, the yeah. latter half. Uh, and then I was there for much of uh, 86. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's... Could, could you see it changing then? Could you see it turning into like the, the you know, the, the drug war beginning? Um, really not until maybe when I was there in 1988, 88, mm -hmm. 89 was a time when I was there for more than a year continuously. That was the bulk of my dissertation research. Mm -hmm. Um, it was considered earlier to be solely a Medellin thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, remember these, well, I, I don't know when they went out of business, you may not have crossed paths with them, but there were these two sensationalist Bogota tabloid newspapers. One of them was called El Bogotano and the other was called Espas El Espacio, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and they had all kinds of gory stuff. And I remember in 1983 or 84, there was a headline that says, Medellin, a quien le toca morir hoy? You know, Medellin, whose turn is it to die today? This was considered a Medellin thing, right? Bogota had as emerald violence, right? You would always hear about some emerald guy getting whacked, right? Uh, but it was not a drug thing. And Santa Marta had um, little uh, kind of little marijuana, small scale uh, pot exporting cartel wars, but it was almost a funny thing unless you were one of those people right uh but uh, medellin was considered where all the bad stuff happened at the time it wasn't until later in the 80s that it was you know extended you know to the rest of the country uh, i perhaps that that feeling of bogota being separate from it is you know one of the big problems as well it's like oh it's not coming here it's not going to reach here it's a medellin thing and then of and course, it really did. gets elected, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it, it came to the rest of the country, not because drug trafficking became generalized to the rest of the country, but because that was a strategy of Pablo Escobar to bring that violence to the rest of the country as a pressure tactic against the government. I can tell you, I lived um, largely in Santander, so Bucaramanga in 88, 89, and uh, there was just an enormous boom in Bucaramanga at that time because people from Medellin were uh, buying up property to, to go live there because it was very uh, placid, right? So, you know, my memories of being there during the worst of all of this are, you know, mostly uneventful with re regard to all of those things because really the only uh, drug war things that occurred in Bucaramanga were, okay, they were significant. One of them was significant. 
was that Vanguardia, which is the Bucaramanga uh, newspaper, uh, got its own bomb, like El Espectador did, uh, because they were, you know, hardliners against uh, Escobar. And also there was the um, the Medellin versus Cali kind of cartel war a little later. And there was a drugstore chain. Uh, I won't name the drugstore because it still exists, the chain. I assume it's in, in better hands now, which was identified with the Cali cartel. And so I know that the Bucaramanga branches of that would sometimes get blown up I know the one. I'll name it. It's La Rebaja, isn't it? La Rebaja, right. And, <laughs> so okay. It's and, all also, <laughs> and also there was a radio network. Uh, I think it was called uh, Grupo Radial Colombiana, which people called La Cadena Blanca, because I think at the time it was thought to be tied to the uh, Cali part. And, and, and so affiliates of that would sometimes get... Uh, you know, they're, li- they're little surprises. Wow. So that, that brings me to your, your studies then, Santander. You must have been looking into liberals and conservatives uh, if you were up yeah, there. Well, what else the would los, you do? Los yeah, comuneros so, and everything. No, you know, I'm not a comuneros. I'm not a colonial era person. Comuneros be- between uh, Anthony McFarland and John Letty Fell, and I think we've pretty much, uh, and also uh, Mario Aguilera Pena for a uh, Colombian uh, study of that. I think we're, we're pretty set on the comuneros, right? Okay. Um, Except for there, there's always room for another Colombian kind of uh, telenovela about it. Um, and, but anyway, the, so yeah, my uh, research dissertation research was about what are the social origins of the liberal and conservative party. Basically, going back to address the question of was there any bedrock fundamental difference, um, and how did these partisan identities become solidified over time over the course of the mid through late 19th century. Uh-huh. My results, let us say, were inconclusive. Inconclusive, and and uh, <laughs> and the violence, the violence in Santander around these yeah. periods, the liberal conservative, yeah. it was massive. I mean, it was. You, you must have found documentation for this. Yeah. Well, remember, there's violence and there's violence. Nineteenth century were pretty much set piece civil war battles uh, interspersed with periods of great peace. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, there's a, a a book, a very 600-page uh, travelogue through New Granada, as was called back then, by a uh, New Hampshire, uh, New England person named Isaac Holton. And he marvels at the fact that, you know, sure, there are periodic civil wars he's writing in the early 1850s. But he says, other than that, this is a country where the uh, one guy on foot, you know, the, he's carrying the mail, but he's also carrying encomiendas. He's carrying gold. And mm-hmm. nobody would think of robbing him. This was reputed throughout the 19th century to be a very peaceful place. Um, and then periodically, you would have, like I said, these set-piece civil wars where people would do characteristic civil war things to each other, but then it would die down. And one side would be victorious and puff out its chest, and the other would be sullen and planning the next civil war. Mm-hmm. But you know, this wasn't considered an endemically violent kind of place. And so one big mystery, which is a different century, it's the 20th century, so not what my research has been about, is how did we get to a point where we got the violencia of the 50s, right? The late 40s through the 50s into the early 60s, um, which was very severe in Santander, where it's severe also in Tolima, which is a region I'm now becoming familiar with because the the program I run works with the university in Ibagué. Because if there's one really interesting thing, and I was reminded of this just last week with a reading that our students did, Uh, as soon as Gaetan was assassinated, so we're skipping, right, we're going to 1948, as soon as Gaetan was assassinated, the liberals and conservatives instantly went at it in the cruelest, you know, most horrible, sadistic ways possible in rural areas, not in the whole country, but in much of the interior of the country, right? Um, And it reminds me of the breakup of Yugoslavia, where, you know, so long as Tito was president, yeah, you knew there were Croatian separatists, and you know, maybe people didn't like each other, but there was no inkling. I mean, remember how shocked we were at the time as like consumers of, of, of the news to see, you know, what happened in Bosnia, what happened in, in uh, well, especially in Bosnia, where these people who had been living peaceably together and were even intermarried suddenly, you know, started doing these horrible things to each other, right? Um, and that's really the phenomena that we, we we saw in Colombia in the 40s and 50s. I mean, how were these people apparently peaceably coexisting, right? And then suddenly they, you know, they wanted to exterminate each other. It's quite strange. And when you talk about the sort of interior, we look at Tolima, we look at, uh, uh, I guess, Boyacá, 
the, yeah. the, I would think there were the departments that sort of ring Bogota, you know, that sort of extension from the capital, because right. of course, you don't think of the coast connected so much. Yeah, this. and it's, it's always been a mystery to me is it because the coast was so overwhelmingly liberal, right? Mm. I mean, there wasn't really mass conservatism on the coast. There were families, right? Mm. Uh, Herlane and so, you know, families we know today, right? Yeah, Herlane, even, yeah. even now there are conservative senators. For, yeah, right. We, we, we can't think of Roberto Herlane without laughing, but so we'll get into that some other episode. Yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, he's dead now, so that's good. Uh, uh, you know, was there no violence on the coast simply because there were not enough conservatives and they, you know, or or because it was really a different kind of political culture? But in certainly in places where there were significant numbers of liberals and conservatives, they all went at each other, not in the 19th century civil war way, mm-hmm. but in an apparently very undirected, you know, kill, 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 you know, no distinction between combatants and non-combatants, just, you know, horrible ways that uh, we have now regrettably become more familiar with in the world, but yeah. almost always in a kind of Yugoslavia or Sri Lankan kind of ethnic conflict way. And these but, were people who were ethnically indistinguishable. That's I mean, right. They were, all, they were all Colombians. They're all Boyacense, Santanderiano, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, one interesting book recently, well, not not recent anymore, by uh, Mary Rodan, colleague uh-huh. of mine at um, Hunter College, the City University of New York, is, I can't remember the title, but about the violencia in Urao, right? Western mm-hmm. Antioquia, getting towards Choco. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in her uh, research, I mean, she found, yeah, there were some levels of organization, and it, it actually, in at least in that region, uh, what she found was that the violencia was not, oh, everybody suddenly spontaneously goes at it, right? There there are real organizational villains. And at least that region in the 50s looked more like what we know or think we know about paramilitary violence in the 90s, mm. right? So I think that's a real question about the violencia to the extent that we research it more in other reasons, regions will we get away from this, oh my gosh, people suddenly spontaneously started killing each other and get towards, yeah, there really were perfidious mm. instigators and agents. Um, and, you know, was it about land grabbing or so forth? That's a really interesting point. Not one I've, I've read about or anything, but if it's if it's the pattern that makes, the, you know, that could lead, I would say not easily or seamlessly, but it, it could lead to showing a pattern of, of land grabs or a pattern of economic, uh, uh, let's say, uh, benefit to the perfidious, as the word you use, uh, benefit to, uh, let's say, political or, or familial clans, and then repeating well, right. itself. Who were the winners and, and losers from the Violencia? We we know who the losers were, not just people who died, but people who were displaced. I mean, what's the origin of Bogota as a mega city? And getting to your earlier question, where did Gamines come from? You know, the 80s are long enough ago. It's closer to the 50s than it is to now. I wouldn't be surprised if many Gamines were the second generation of people suddenly and violently displaced from the countryside to Bogota from the Violencia. But there's a very interesting uh, recent book by Robert Carl. Yes, excellent. Uh, uh, excellent. And the the interesting thing there is that that was the first peace process, right? Mm-hmm. The reconciliation between liberals and conservatives. And what we see now uh, is what we saw then, which is mm-hmm. that initially we're like, yeah, we're going to have a commission of inquiry. We're going to get to the bottom of this. We're going to find out who the mo-. And then, of course, there was a conspiracy by liberal and conservative elites to say, we ain't touching that, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to give some token number of people their land back. We're going to, you know, but basically we're going to let bygones be bygones. Same dynamic we see now, right? Yeah. I mean, that's why there's such um, revulsion even beyond Uribistas, right? There's a lot of uh, revulsion against, you know, just the impunity. And we're not really finding out things uh, about why it happened. We're just kind of closing our eyes and trying not to do it again in the future. But uh, we've, we've, we've seen this script before. And uh, uh, the innovation in Robert Carl's book is to show that you know, the violencia was, it, it ended this way. I think we, we should name it. It's, it's called Forgotten Peace, isn't it? Yes. And it's an excellent. I had him on the show way oh. back, way mm-hmm. back. It's in the hundreds or two hundreds. Um, but uh, excellent. I've had an opportunity to meet him on a couple of occasions and listen to him speak. I mean, what, a, what a study. What an investigation. And, and man, at least for Tolima, it reminds you mm. um, that as much as we talk about violence now, 
Mm. And I don't just mean now, right? Now we're in a relatively yeah. low period, except for certain unfortunate reason, regions. I mean, if we think about around 2000, when things were really bad, or we think about 1989, which was a terrible year. In fact, I have a book behind me called 1989 by, right, by, by Maria Elvira Santer, which is an oral history of like every bad thing that happened. Uh, that is nothing, mm. right? I don't just mean it's nothing compared to 1950 to 53, right? I mean, it's nothing compared to the first few years after the alleged formal, you know, mm. pact to end the violencia. I mean, 58 through 63, was already under the National Front. And I mean, he's got graphics of in Tolima. It's like every week, right? 50 people here, 30 people there. And this is a small department yeah. population-wise. It's big geographically, but it didn't even have a million people then. Mm. I mean, yeah. you're talking about the, the impact of the violencia on, on Tolima outside of Ibagué, which was a place people fled to, right? Where you could have some anonymity as in most larger cities, like 5% of the population dying mm. during this period. I mean, dying by violence. So, you know, not to discount all of the recent violence that we've been at least indirect observers of over the past several decades, but man, the 50s, I don't think people grasped the, the extent of that violence. And I, and I think, you know, so people of my, like my dad, rest in peace a long time ago, but my dad would say, oh, you know, Colombia is always a, a violent place. He's thinking back to that as the 1950s. He's thinking back because, you know, that reference you made to the, the, the traveler in, you know, the late, I guess it was the early 19th century or something, saying mm -hmm. you, you could walk with the mail and gold across the country. But then there's that image, and we always say, oh, yeah, Colombia's always been violent. But that's because of that, the 1950s, and of course, the Bogotazo, these are you know red flags that come up. And then the, yeah. so it's really fascinating. And then when I think about Tolima, because I think about Tolima as one of the first sort of coffee regions in around. Yes, that's Europe. right, Cundinamarca and Tolima. And, uh, and also on North of Santander. Yeah, I think about those. And, and then that violence presumably, presumably pushed the coffee trade, you know, towards Risaralda, Quindío, um, and other states. Would you say something like that? or um, That's entirely possible. I don't know. I mean, you've, you've observed what, you know, everybody's observed, which is that the initial coffee regions were not the later coffee regions. Yes. And I don't know if that was because of violence and displacement or because those newer regions had, whether climate-wise or anything else, they had certain competitive advantages. Um, that's a, a story that um, it's possible. Mm. You know, that's not a literature that I know much about, but it's possible that Marco Palacios's book from like 45 years ago might, might get into that. But it is true that, you know, you think about... Uh, you know, the Hacienda Coloma, that kind of touristy um, yeah. coffee place around Fusagasuga. I mean, that was a real commercial coffee growing region. And I don't know that it, it's not that it no longer produces coffee, but the coffee it produces now pales in comparison with other parts of the country. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know whether those initial regions fell off or whether they were then dwarfed by other places that were simply better at producing it. I'm going to look this up because I think this is really a fascinating you yeah. know, ev evolution. Or of course, it could be you know due to population. I mean, the, we know that people from Antioquia work. You know, they are the, known yeah. to be the really industrious people. And if when it was a you know, this, this, yeah, this, and I, I I don't know enough about what goes into uh, success versus failure in coffee cultivation <laughs> and export to to know what the determinants yeah. are. But one interesting thing about Tolima, it's not that you move out of Tolima into you know, farther west. Northern Tolima, at least, was the last place to be settled, right? Huh. Um, it was empty. I shouldn't say that, of course, uh, especially with our current sensibilities. It had an indigenous population that was ruthlessly, you know, uh, treated and hounded to the brink of extermination. But in terms of what we would consider kind of European settlement, mm. uh, Northern Tolima was basically empty until the 1870s. If you mm. look at the time of foundation of Libano or Murillo, um, or uh, Villahermosa, all those places around there, those are 1870s or later. They're remarkably late. Uh, in fact, in Murillo, which is a town that I'm very familiar with, um, it's the town that's closest to the Nevado de Ruiz, yes. right? Um, it's not by any means the town that's most endangered because it is doesn't have a river that could like, you know, create an automato type disaster. But um, 
Murillo was founded in the 1870s, and you'll notice in Murillo on the two main streets, there are two different styles of architecture. One looks more northeastern and one looks more northwestern. It's because that is where Boyacenses and Antioqueños met in their respective mm-hmm. colonizations towards the middle. <laughs> Fascinating that the Arctic So what happened um, just in terms of like human geography is that 1860s onward for the remainder of the 19th century, uh, Antioquia was the population hub in the Northwest and it was people from Antioquia who moved South, right? Mm. Likewise, Pereira, Manizales, these are all 1860s and onward um, settlements, right? Mm. Armenia is from like 1889. It's fantastically late. Or Calarca is like very late. Um, But they moved due South and they also moved South, uh, what is that? Southeast. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, it's that's really very interesting indeed i mean the tolima history is is something that really appeals to me and i always try and buy uh my coffee as well from tolima yeah. or from it, around about it, it's got two histories really it's got the northern tolima one which we've been discussing and then the southern tolima one which is much more heavily indigenous mm. and is not like a recent you know more recent colonization thing right you know not is that region well, we've got ten minutes, Richard, and and your 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 conversation is absolutely gripping. But we have to drip. We have to drip. We have to slip over to the elections. We have oh, to for right. ten minutes. We can't we can't not talk about it. Yes. Now, you were here for the first round, so you saw yes. you know Gustavo Petro winning the first round, and of course uh, Raúl Fernández coming in second, uh, Gutiérrez into third, the centro, uh, Fajardo into fourth. We've had all sorts of developments. Ingrid, who smelt blood in the water beforehand and withdrew, but still got around 40,000 votes in, or something. In, in her own mind, she did. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, but let's Let's just what I mean. One thing you're, you're active on the Columbia Calling Facebook page, which I am immensely appreciative of. <laughs> yeah, I, I really should be more disciplined. I no, 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 it's probably. fine. You've got tenure, so you're not in trouble if you write. Something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what I liked is that you said you said that it just goes to show that you know the wealthy or the elites yeah. or the business interested uh, community in Colombia would rather vote in a brick than lose the, their their wealth. I mean, tell yeah, us right. about what you think. Yeah, a brick or a package of ketchup or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, I mean, in terms of what I think. Uh, I am kind of divided, not in terms of whom I would vote for, right? But uh, I'm divided in terms of where I think Colombia is as a country now. On the one hand, it is dispiriting and predictable that so many of the usual suspects would say, oh, I'm going with the guy who says he hates us, right? (laughs) Versus the person who wants to make more fundamental changes. That's how much they hate more fundamental change, right? Mm. So that's the negative interpretation, right? The depressing, dispiriting one. Or positive one is that, hey, we have wiped off the electoral map two consecutive Uribismo, kind of pure continuismo candidates, right? Who remembers Zuluaga now, right? Zuluaga was going to be the person, right? And Uribismo was so cocky, they were like, we're not even going to have a consulta, a primary, as we call it in the United States. We're just going to have an internal thing, and we're going to christen him, and he's going to be unsullied by having to compete against other people and, you know, in within the Centro Democratico, and he's just going to go on and, and do his thing, right? Um, yeah, how did that work out? Uh, and then, of course, they gravitated to FICO, which already... Sure, we say bad things about FICO, you know, if we don't if we don't like conservatives, right? Um, but as I mentioned to you last week, when we met, you just go read his manifesto, which I'm sure hasn't been scrubbed from the internet yet, even though he's yesterday's man, he's like, I voted for the peace agreement in the referendum, right? I mean, if this was the substitute candidate of Uribismo, what a come down that is already. Mm. And, and now he's no place. Now we get to, uh, Rodolfo who has no opinion, doesn't seem to care, even though, He's got this horrible personal history, you know, with his family being the victims of Colombian violence. His stepdaughter was kidnapped and murdered, right? His parents were kidnapped. Um, And uh, there's a lot of weird stuff around that, but I think it's very bad taste for people to get into it, frankly. Yeah, we should leave him alone. Uh, But, uh, you know, we now have two candidates, one of whom is, if anything, way too invested in the peace process to the extent that he's unnecessarily turning people off. And another person who probably needs to be reminded by his advisors that there is such a thing as a peace process, not because he's a militarist. In fact, he was talking about cutting the military 
just like it was another useless government agency, right? Yeah. How cool is and unexpected is that in the in the Colombian context? So, you know, the happy interpretation is that, wow, Uri Bismo has really been killed off, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Mm. But I mean, do we really believe it's killed off? I mean, I, 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 it's killed off for these four years, maybe. But uh, I, I just I just think it, it, this it's an ismo, isn't it? It's an ism. I, I just think it's going to somehow raise its, but that's, its head. But that's, but that's fine. Look, I'm, I'm enough of a pluralist to say there's always a space for that. I mean, there's mm. always going to be conservatives, right? Yeah. Um, and there's always going to be law and order people. Honestly, mm. it's very dispiriting to me that, look, I, I think if Fico had been the law and order candidate a little more, he'd be he'd be there in second place. None of these people gave a fig about the daily concerns of people going out on the street or going out to work in the fields. Either they said nothing about it, like Rodolfo, or they try to say, oh, it's just because of poverty, like Petro. What the heck kind of solution is that? Because there's always going to be poverty, right? Is he basically reconciling himself to the, oh, there'll always be crime, right? I mean, there was a place for a an everyday law and order candidate. And Fico could have been that person and he threw it away, right? Um, But, you know, to your point about Uribismo, um, (coughs) look, there was Uribismo before Uribe. There'll be Uribismo after Uribe. But Uribismo in the specific sense of harshly intolerant, willing willing to make agreements with violent, you know, violent people on the right, right? You know, basically a, a party in alliance with paramilitarism. It, it seems like that that's, you know, that's off the table now, uh, at least for the short term. Uh, and, you know, Uribe now himself looks like a an old, decrepit person, even though he's not that much older than me. I, I mean, wish he would just sort of go and, you know, dote on his grandchildren. I mean, I just... He, he, he totally blew it. I mean, mm. the popularity he had in 2010 when he left office, he, he did a whole kind of TV variety show where he brought up his cabinet ministers and interviewed them like a game show. You know, I won't say everybody loved Uribe. A lot of people hated him, but he was a broadly popular person, but he just couldn't leave it alone. And he would have signed that same stupid peace treaty. He just couldn't take that. It was someone else. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a remarkable, you know, he, he's, he's in, as interesting in his own way as Nixon was as, mm-hmm. as just, you know, for somebody to do a psychological portrait of Uribe, like Gary Wills did many years ago with uh, Nixon Agonistes about, I mean, that, that's a, that's an overdue book because he's a fascinating person. Kind of would be interesting, wouldn't it? Would it? So, so this is a shout out. So any academics or any people wishing to get into this, go and, go and do a psychological <laughs> evaluation of Uribe. Richard, that should be your next book. I'm not equipped to do it. <laughs> You're not equipped. I think you are. Yeah. Actually, I I, I uh, can say I have obviously not been equipped to do any book because I don't have one. So yeah. well, I have read little parts that you got in books or been. But been but to the election, uh, to you know, to who's going to win, um, I I wouldn't bet more than fifty cents in one direction or the other because I feel that there is some hidden population of Petro voters voters who are largely poor who either work or rest on Sundays, and they had no strategic or tactical reason to go out and vote last time because it was clear he was going to win in the first round. He was going to get to the second round, but he couldn't win in the first round, right? He was in that that sweet spot where people could, you know, go stay home and not vote. Mm. And if those people are motivated now and vote, then that can be his margin, right? Yeah. And my other feeling is that, that, that you know, Rodolfo Hernandez is his his upturn that that amazing sort of three weeks he had it's easy come easy go as well and and it's it, i i mean i guess he's going to get most of uh fico gutierrez's his, his votes but we can't count on it you know a lot of people said oh you know let's vote for the viejito <laughs> so, so i don't know i as you said i wouldn't bet either way and today we're we're recording this on a wednesday you know the rcn who i will not you know, completely <laughs> believe their poll, but they've got Petro ahead by I don't know, sort of point point eight percent or something. I, I think they just I, a lot of the times. And I've said this before. I think they, they are deflating tension to show show that uh, you know both right. candidates are moving. But I don't know. I mean, this is Colombia after yeah. all. And you know, before we pick on uh, Rolofo too much for the support that he's getting from people he claims to hate. I mean, you saw the thing yesterday. Uh, uh, Rudolf Holmes, who was the finance minister of neoliberalism, right? Mm-hmm. He was Gaviria's finance. Gaviria. He put in the whole thing that everyone on the left claims to lament. He says he's voting for Petro, and Petro's happy to have him, <sighs> right? So all kinds of weird a lot. And you can say, 
oh, this is terrible. It shows that Colombian politics has lost all of its ideological content. Um, or you can say, you know, this is what we have in a normal country, right? Mm-hmm. In a normal country, people do not get in reflexive freak out mode and they don't automatically, you know, align themselves and, you know, that, that, cause that doesn't lead to any place good. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think we're getting the kind of weird alliances that are characteristic of more normal politics. So maybe that's a good thing. That's, I would say that's a good thing. Final, final thing. And then we sign off. Um, if, uh, Gustavo Petro loses, how likely is it that, uh, everyone will, well, everyone, his supporters will empty into the streets. Uh, not very likely because honestly, if he loses, it's because the people who empty into the streets, and I met some of these people, I was at the University of Tolima, the public mm-hmm. university of Ibagué, and these are voto en blanco or don't vote people. The, I mean, this is the, this, this is like Bernie Sanders people who wouldn't go vote for Hillary Clinton, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a purist left in Colombia, you know, a purist left sometimes especially among young people with uh vaguely anarchist tendencies and uh you know they they are they protest and they're right to protest and you know um all for all of their past protests and hypothetical future ones but they are not petro people the purist yeah. left are not petro they're not they yeah. would not vote you know blindly for the left of center candidate. right no no they no i i, I think if he loses it's because that um you know 18 to 22 set is not gonna go out and vote because they think he's gone he's he's too systemy too systemy wow that is amazing well you know there is a difference between these sort of as, as you say a purist left and of course the the uh, it's a career left now i mean i would say he's he's been oh, here right. a while <laughs> well it just goes to show you can't win when you're in the gorillas it's like oh you're a gorilla and when you <laughs> do things within the system which was the purpose of the 1990 peace agreement then it's like oh you've gone all you know you know nobody's happy Oh, well, listen, Dr. Richard Stoller of Penn State University. Richard, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating. We've covered so much. Um, And of course, we'll have to have you back on again at a later date because this is really, it has been, I mean, I've been so engaged the whole way through just listening to your tales and listening to your, 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 it seems like a bottomless pit of knowledge about it. And you also, you well, know, you know, you know what they say in Spanish, right? They say translated into English, the devil know, knows more because he's old than because he's the devil. So, ah, but you also astounded us with Bolivian knowledge at the very beginning. So there you go. I mean, it's, it's yeah, a shout out one. to Walberto's everywhere. Yeah. Walberto's everywhere. Listen, uh, thank you so much for, for everything. And I guess, you know, where I, you don't publish too much, but <laughs> you can find your name. You know, Google Richard yeah. Stoller. There yeah. are there are apparently there. There's another Richard Stoller who I guess was a psychologist at Yale who studies porn. So that's oh. not me. There you go. Well, when I did the search as well, there was a Richard Stoller who'd, who'd recently passed away. But I'm glad it okay. wasn't you. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> Sorry, anyway. yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, we will talk again in the future. And, and of course, you'll be back down in Colombia with another group before I long. So, so. Uh, as well, we've been talking to Dr. Richard Stoller of Penn State University. We really have. I don't think we've even scraped the surface of his knowledge on Colombia, but he's left us kind of agog with his knowledge so that's us for this week and now we'll go over to obviously some messages from our sponsors and then of course it will be on to next week and it will be we'll do something different it will be just after the elections but ah, by the time it comes out we'll all know the results and so maybe after that we'll give it a little bit more time to to sort of settle and then maybe do something to reflect a bit on the the elections so thank you to all for listening and i'll be back next week This episode was brought to you by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean. Since 1967, their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. And also our other sponsor is BNB Colombia Tours, experts in custom-made travel throughout Colombia. The team at BNB Colombia Tours can provide you with fantastic 
private experiences, creating wonderful memories of Colombia for a lifetime. Check out the website at bnbcolombia.com, complete the free itinerary form, and tell them that Columbia Calling sent you to receive a further 5% off their already great prices. So that's bnbcolombia.com and, of course, latinnews.com. Thank you for everyone for listening. That's us. Farewell. And of course, check back next week. Bye-bye. Oh, no.